I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. just wanted to let you know I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. The name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to the original language to gain cues that help us to discard outdated and traditional ideas of what's happening in the stories. Well, the Book of Numbers, as I've said before, is split into three parts, and that shouldn't surprise anyone who's heard me teach on numbers at all. This is something that I have touched on repeatedly in our lessons. Well, the first part, as we've discussed before, they all deal with the preparation to leave Mount Sinai and to take up the journey to take the Promised Land. And for seven weeks, we explored this setup. And as we did so, we discovered a flow of ideas that spanned these first 10 chapters of Numbers, a series of thoughts being introduced and addressed in the text as future actions and complications were explored by the text the future conquest, the movement of the camp, envy at others for receiving positions of power. The second part of Numbers began two weeks ago in chapter 11, and in this chapter, we begin to read narratives. And every narrative that we read is one that is related to failure on the part of the people of Israel. But these series of narratives, they contain within them their own flow, a single connecting idea that is present in each of these stories that we have read and that we will read. One that escalates with each successive narrative in the beginning before being addressed. In chapter 11, it was simply a failure to appreciate the miraculous bread that fell from heaven each morning. The people desired a variety to their diet. They lusted for more than just manna. And as this desire grew, it led to an action that then precipitated the plague and judgment that they received. That action the people spoke against the gift that God gave Israel each day. They slandered the manna, this bread that fell from heaven and sustained them. And, alternatively, the people held Egypt up as the place of blessing and good. In Egypt, there was variety. In Egypt, there was plenty. In Egypt, there was meat. And their tongues got the best of them. And in this, they sinned, and they brought judgment on themselves. In chapter 12, then, we see a similar pattern presented. Now, sure, the motivation is different, but the results are the same. In this chapter, it is pride that grows within the hearts of two people specifically. 
Miriam and Aaron. They felt pride because of their own importance and the role that had been entrusted to them. And as they lived their roles of honor and position longer, this pride grew, and it led to an action that then once again precipitated a judgment against the offenders. And this pride, it led to, once again, a sin of the tongue. The slander of Moses for not living up to their standards. The slander of the God-appointed leader of the nation, the chosen one of God. Again, their tongues get the best of them, and judgment is then poured out on the offenders. And if you haven't caught the flow yet, then this week we see it ramped up once more. First, it was slandering the miraculous gift of God that led to judgment. Then it was slandering God's appointed leader. And this week, we find a new round of slander. Once again, the motivation is different. Once again, the circumstances are different. Once again, the target is different. But the result is the same. This week, Israel speaks evil against the thing of God. They slander the hope that God has placed before them. And we begin to see a theme develop that encompasses most of the chapters here in part two of Numbers, a theme that James addresses rather well in James chapter three, one through nine. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we shall receive greater judgment, for we all stumble in many matters. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the entire body. Look, we put bits in the mouths of horses for them to obey us, and we turn their body. Look at the ships, too, although they are so big and are driven by strong winds. They are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot intends. So, too, the tongue is a little member, yet boasts greatly. See how a little fire kindles a great forest, and the tongue is a fire. The world of unrighteousness, among our members the tongue is set, the one defiling the entire body, and setting on fire the wheel of life. And it is set on fire by Gehenim. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man is able to tame the tongue. It is unruly, evil, filled with deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. The tongue ignites fires and incites sin more than any other part of our body. Men are able to tame most things, but the tongue is nearly impossible. As Proverbs says, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and so taming it is of vital importance. Because as we see in these stories and numbers, it is the tongue that starts it all. So let's read this week's Parsha, and then discuss the specific example that we find of this theme. Numbers chapter 13 And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Send one man from each tribe of their fathers, every one a leader among them. And by the mouth of Hashem, Moshe sent them from the wilderness of Paran, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. And these were the names, from the tribe of Reuven, Shamua, the son of Zakur, from the tribe of Shimon, Shaphat, the son of Chori, from the tribe of Yehuda, Kelev, the son of Yefuna, from the tribe of Yisachar, Yigal, son of Yosef, from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Nun, from the tribe of Binyamin, Palti, the son of Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi, 
from the tribe of Yosef, from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gemali, from the tribe of Asher, Shatur, the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nachvi, the son of Wopshi, from the tribe of Gad, Geuel, the son of Machi. These are the names of the men whom Moshe sent to spy out the land, and Moshe called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Yehoshua. And Moshe sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, Go up here into the south, and go up into the mountains, and see what the land is like, and the people who dwell in it, whether strong or weak, whether few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or evil, and whether the cities they inhabit in it are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests, there are not. And you shall be strong and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first fruit of the grapes. So they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehov, near the entrance of Hamat. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, and Achiman, Sheshai, and Taumi, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron had been built seven years before Tzoan in Mitzrayim. And they came to the Wadi Eshkol, and they cut down from there a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bore it between two of them on a pole, also the pomegranates and of the figs. That place was called the Wadi of Eshkol, because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down from there. And they returned from spying out the land after forty days. And they went and they came to Moshe and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them, and to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they reported to him, and said, We went to the land where you sent us, and truly it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. But the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are walled, very great, and we saw the descendants of Anak there too. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, while the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the shores of the Jordan. And Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are certainly able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel an evil report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, This land through which they have gone as spies is a land eating up its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. And we saw there the Nephilim, sons of Anak of the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we were in their eyes. Chapter 13 of Numbers is one of the more memorable Bible stories. The twelve spies sent to spy out the land and to report back. The spies go out and they break back their spying report, and the report is that the fruit of the land is good, but the challenge is too much. Their cities are too tall, the people are too big and strong, and there is no way we can do this. And the people despair and lose faith. There's one problem with this story. The Hebrew word for spy is not found in this chapter at all. Now, the English, this seems preposterous. Of course the word spy is here. It's found in verse 2, 17, 21, 25, 32. It is all throughout this chapter. And it's in this that we discover something of importance. So the Hebrew word for spy is the word ragal. We find it used in all sorts of applications that pertain to the military act of spying. 
We see it used later in the book of Numbers, Numbers 21-32. And Moses sent to spy out Yazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. We see it used in the story of the two spies who were sent to Jericho in the book of Joshua, Joshua 2-1. And Yehoshua the son of Nun secretly sent out two men from Shittim to spy, saying, Go see the land of Jericho. And they went, and they came to the house of a woman, a whore, and her name was Rahab, and they lay down there. Or just after Jericho, Joshua sends men to spy out their next target, in Joshua 7, verse 2. Now Yehoshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Bethaven, to, on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied it out. We even see this word used in Genesis 42, when Joseph accuses his brothers of being spies. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And there are a host of other places that uses this word throughout the Hebrew scriptures. But this word, this Hebrew word, ragal, it's not found here in Numbers 13. Instead, the word that is translated as spy throughout this chapter is the word tour, not the word ragal. So what is the difference in these words? Well, the word ragal speaks of a military action, a report on troop strength and disposition, a seeking of the strengths to avoid and weaknesses to exploit. And the word ragal does not only mean to spy, but it can also mean to slander and to backbite. Such as in Second Samuel 19.27, And he spoke slander against your servant to my master the king, but my master the king is as the messenger of God. Therefore do what is good in your eyes. Or Psalm 15, verse 3, He has not slandered with his tongue, he has not done evil to his neighbor, nor lifted up a reproach against his friend. The idea of ragal in the military manner contains the idea of speaking about the weakness of the target, revealing its weaknesses, as Joseph put it, revealing the nakedness of the land. But that's not what the word tour means. The word tour is likely the original origin of our modern English word tour, as in tourist or tourism. This word means to explore, to seek out, to search out. It does mean to spy, as in to look over something covertly, but not in a military manner, but in the I spy something with my little bitty eyes manner of the word. It simply means to see something. In fact, while the word ragal has military connotations to it, the word tour is more associated with merchants and traders. For example, First Kings 10 verse 15, Besides that from men of travel, and the prophet from the traders, the tourists, and from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the land. It is a word that's associated with trade and profit, gaining something beneficial, not defeating an enemy. So these men, these men were not sent to spy out the land in a military manner, to see whether or not Israel had the strength to pursue the battle. They were sent to discover what they would profit when they did take the land, the cities and the fruit that had been promised to them. And so while this might seem like a small distinction, there is in this difference a matter of intent and expectation. And there is contained in this difference a matter of outcome. And it is this difference of outcome that we find the failure of the people in this chapter. 
Now we'll return to this shortly, but for now, let's move on and cover the rest of the chapter. Starting in verse 3, we read a listing of the 12 spies that were sent to the land, and there are two things that I would like to highlight in this listing. First of all, it's something that we don't learn in this chapter, but is highlighted later in the book of Numbers. That is the identity of the spy for the tribe of Judah. The man who is a hero later in the story, Caleb, the son of Yefunah. Now, as I said, this chapter doesn't highlight this, but we learn later in Numbers 32, we read an interesting fact about Caleb. Numbers 32, verse 11 through 12. Not one of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above is to see the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they did not follow me completely, except Caleb, the son of Yefunah, the Kenizzite, and Yehoshua, son of Nun, for they have followed Hashem completely. In this verse, we find out that Caleb's father was a Kenizzite, or perhaps Caleb himself was a Kenizzite. This is one of the nations that we've read of before, Genesis 15, 18-21. On that same day, Hashem made a covenant with Abraham, saying, I have given this land to your seed from the river of Mitzrayim to the great river, the river Euphrates, with the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Yevusite. There, in this list, we read it. Caleb was a Kenizzite. His father, at least, was a native of the land that was to be toured, the land that was then to be conquered. He was not a Hebrew, but he was an Israelite. An Israelite of the tribe of Judah. And it makes sense that at least one native would have been chosen, especially when sending men to go tour the land. Someone needs to act as the guide for the group of men who are going on this 40-day tour. Someone needs to interface and interact with the locals, someone who could pass as a local perhaps, and even speak local languages even. And Caleb, a member of the tribe of Judah and yet a foreigner, seemed to be the best choice. And this leads us to the second person in this list that is highlighted in this chapter, and that is Hoshea, the son of Nun. We've read of him before. He is Moses' assistant. He was being groomed to replace Moses. And alongside a tour guide, these tourists would also need a leader. Someone to make the decisions about where to go, and what to do, and who to talk to, and where to sleep, and so on and so forth. Now, both of these men, they are highlighted in the text of this chapter on their own. Joshua, just after the list of spies is called out, that Moses changed his name. And what is the meaning of the name change? Well, the name Hosea, Hosea, means salvation. It's the root of Yeshua, and it's the root of Hoshiana. And Moses then changes the name of Hosea to Yehoshua. And this name means Yah is salvation or Yah saves. And this is significant because these men, they were going into the land and they were going to witness some very awesome sights and fearful prospects. And this name change, it's a reminder. Your salvation is not found in man. Your salvation is not found in your authority or your position. Your salvation is found in Hashem alone. And this is something that was very important for the leader to keep in mind. He was not to see himself as the Savior, but to always look to Hashem for salvation. It was not his power or the power of the people that he led that was the determining factor of victory. It was Hashem alone. 
You see, it's very easy for a person who has been granted authority or leadership to begin to become a power or authority unto themselves. To begin to react as Miriam and Aaron reacted in the last chapter. To get puffed up in pride and believe in their own ability to lead. To believe in their own importance. And when a person begins to believe this, then when a problem arises that they can't handle, then the successful outcome seems hopeless and the leader fails to lead the people to what God has for them. But when the leader recognizes that it is Hashem that is the one who saves and provides and conquers, then the ability of the leader is not part of the equation. The question then becomes, can Hashem provide and save or not? And the fact is that he can. So then the question becomes, do you believe this to be true? And that's what the rest of the chapter explores. This dichotomy of those who have faith that God will make a way, and those who are reliant upon their own power being what will lead them home. And so these twelve men, they go on a forty-day tour of the land of Canaan. As they travel, they make it to Hebron, and the text takes a moment to highlight Hebron, this place of renown from the life of Abraham. It was at Hebron that Sarah died, and that the cave of Machpelah was purchased. It's Hebron, where Abraham himself was buried, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Rebekah, and Leah. And it's Hebron, where the descendants of Anak lived. The same Anakim that are compared to the Nephilim at the end of the chapter. And it's Hebron that Caleb chooses for his inheritance when this is all over. You see, because of Caleb's faithful report in this event, Hashem gives him his choice of land to occupy when the land is conquered. So when Israel conquers the land in the book of Joshua, after all of the major fighting is done and all that's left is some cleanup action, Joshua gives Caleb a choice of where to settle. And Caleb points to the Nephilim-covered mountain, and he claims it as his own. Joshua chapter 14, verse 5 through 15. As Hashem had commanded Moshe, so the children of Israel did, and they divided the land. And the children of Judah came to Joshua and Gilgal, and Caleb the son of Yephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, you know the word which Hashem spoke to Moshe, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was forty years old when Moshe, the servant of Hashem, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought back word to him as was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt. But I followed Hashem my God completely. So Moses swore on that day, saying, The land on which your foot has trodden is your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have followed Hashem my God completely. And now see, Hashem has kept me alive, as he said, these forty-five years since Hashem spoke this word to Moshe while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now see, I am eighty-five years old today, and yet I am still as strong today as I was on the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for battle and for going out and for coming in. And now give me this mountain of which Hashem spoke in that day. For you heard in that day how the Anakim were there, and that the cities were great and walled. If Hashem is with me, then I shall dispossess them, as Hashem said. And Joshua then blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb the son of Yephunneh as an inheritance. So Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb the son of Yephunneh the Kenizzite to this day, because he followed Hashem, God of Israel, completely. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arva, and Arva was the greatest man among the Anakim, and the land had rest from fighting. And this is an example of the faith of Caleb. 
for Nephilim, Anakim as they're called here, as well as Rephaim and Zamzumim and Emim, as we'll read later in the book of Deuteronomy. They were giants. But that's something that does not stop Caleb. You see, now some say that the, the giants that we're talking about are only six to seven feet tall. You see, the Hebrews of the day were on average of a lower end of five feet, and we have significant amount of archaeological evidence to support this claim. And so a six foot six person would seem like a giant, and there is no, at least nothing, published by a reputable archaeological source that would indicate that giants ever existed. And excuses are made for the bed of Og. Oh, it only lists the size of the bed and not him. Maybe he just likes a lot of sleeping room, you know, king-size bed. And the size of Goliath? Well, the Septuagint records his height as only six foot six, four cubits in a span, rather than six cubits in a span. And so that makes more sense and makes people more comfortable with a six foot six tall man than with a nine foot tall man. And because archaeology has not presented evidence of giants, then giants must not have existed. And this phrasing here of as grasshoppers in their eyes only means that they were exceptionally tall, but not really giants by today's standards. Now, I personally believe that there was a significant height difference in the Anakim, something that would have set them apart as fearsome and made them easily identifiable as different from other men. And for these fearsome warriors, whether giants or not, Caleb reacts in courage and faith, not just in the future. After all, the battles are completed and victory is at hand even here before facing a single soldier. Caleb has the faith that God will cause them to be victorious. And so the tourists return after 40 days with their report. And the report at first is exactly what was asked for, if in the reverse order. For they were tasked in verse 15 to see the land and the people who dwelt in the land and the cities and the strongholds, etc. Then they were tasked with reporting on whether land is rich or poor, whether forests or not, and the fruit of the land. And so in verse 27, they begin their report and they begin with the fruit first. Truly, it is a land that flows with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it, presumably indicating the pomegranates, figs, and the enormous cluster of grapes that they carried with them. Then in verse 28 through 29, they transition to the people. The people are strong. The cities are walled, and the Anakim are there. And here is where the various people groups that we encountered live. So far, so good. They're doing what they were tasked with doing. But apparently this report started some murmuring among the people. Oh, the Anakim. They are large and fierce warriors. Oh, the cities are walled. Oh, there's so many of them. Oh, they, they have the high ground and the defensive positions, the land to live off of, better weapons, better training, and a thousand gods. They have every advantage over us. Murmur, murmur, murmur. And so Caleb steps up to silence them, and he says, let's do this immediately. Why are we waiting? This is going to be epic, and we're going to win. And then the other tourists, they step forward, and they refute Caleb. What are you talking about? We are not able to win. They are stronger. And there it is. There is the evil report of the land. Why was it that these men gave an evil report? It's because they turned their tourist scouting information gathering mission into a military spying mission. Rather than sticking to what they had been asked to provide, they decided to give commentary on what they saw, as is the duty of a spy. And in doing so, they defamed and slandered the land. Because a spy report 
isn't given to everyone. It's only given to the leaders. And while the text says that they gave an evil report against the land, it is really the power of God that they've given an evil report against. We can't take it, they say. The people are too great. And in that, they lose sight of the name change of Joshua. It is Hashem that is salvation, not your own power or your own ability. It's Him who gives the victory, not your numbers or your swords or your training. If you focus on your inability, you will never rely on His ability. Now, earlier I stated that the word spy does not appear in this chapter to describe what happened here, but the fact of the matter is that the word spy is used once in one place in Scripture to describe these events. Deuteronomy chapter 1, 21 through 28. It says, See, Hashem, your Elohim, has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as Hashem, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear nor be discouraged. And all of you came near to me and said, Well, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we would come. And the matter was good in my eyes, so I took twelve of your men, one from each tribe, and they turned and they went up into the mountains, and they came to the wadi Eshkol, and they spied it out. That is the word ragal. And they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands, and they brought it down to us, and they brought back word to us, saying, The land which Hashem our God is giving to us is good. But you would not go up, and you rebelled against the mouth of Hashem your God, and you grumbled in your tents and said, Because Hashem was hating us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going to? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and walled up to the heavens. And we saw the sons of the Anakim there, too. Here in Deuteronomy, we get, as they say, the rest of the story. Because here in Numbers, it only says that Hashem commanded Moshe to send men to tour the land. But in Deuteronomy, we discovered that the people asked to send men to search out the land so that they could determine where to go first. Hey, which of these great cities do we want first? Which city is the first on the chopping block of the conquest? And that was good in the eyes of Hashem. He accepted that request, and so he issued the command that we read of in the beginning of this chapter. And in Deuteronomy 124, it says that they came to the Wadi Eshkol, and they spied it out. If we compare and contrast these passages, we discover that the men were tasked with touring the land by the command of Hashem, but they took it upon themselves the task of spying the land. And in this comparison, we discover the truth of the matter. The outcome of the touring mission is found solely in how the spies chose to take on their role. They were tasked with one thing, exploring to build up the hope and the reward that was to come. And they focused on something completely different, their fear. They focused on their own fear of what might happen if they were to go out there and face this fight on their own and fail. They focused on the enemy and the daunting prospect that sat before them, and not on their God and they took their eyes off of his promise. And in their fear, they doubted. In their fear, they slandered the land of promise and gave an evil report of the land. 
Later in 1 Samuel, we find a repeat of the story. No, it's not a literal repeat as we find in Deuteronomy 1, but rather retelling with the same symbols present. Once again, Israel is facing down the enemies of Hashem in the land. Once again, there is a giant in the midst of the enemy camp. For 40 days, Israel stared in on this foe. Once again, they react in fear of the enemy and what might happen to them if they were to lose. And once again, a single man, rather, a young boy, looks on the giant and makes a bold claim. If God is for us, then who can possibly stand against us? And that young man, later in his life, he lives and rules from Hebron. 1 Samuel 17, 2-11 And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side of Israel, stood on a mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And that's where the Septuagint disagrees and says only four cubits and a span. And a bronze helmet was on his head, and he was armed with scaled armor, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze, and a bronze shin guards on his legs, and a bronze spear between his shoulders, and the wood of his spear was like a weaver's bean, and an iron spearhead weighed six hundred shekels, and the shield bearer went before him. Now, I have a hard time believing that a six foot six man could carry all that weight, but who knows. And he stood and shouted to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and shall strike me, then we shall be your servants. But if I overcome him and shall strike him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I shall reproach the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight together. And Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, and they were broken down and in great fear. Did you notice what Goliath called them? Servants of Saul. Rely on your human power, and not servants of Hashem. So continuing on in verse 31 through 37 of this chapter, And when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul, and he sent for them. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant is going and shall fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he is a man of battle from his youth. Then David said to Saul, Your servant has been tending sheep for his father, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and rescued it from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I took hold of it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has stricken both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, seeing he has reproached the armies of the living God. And David said, Hashem, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he does deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and Hashem be with you. Where is David putting his power? Not in being a servant of Saul, not even in being a member of the community of Israel solely in the hands of God. Continuing on then, later, verse 42 through 47. And when the Philistine looked down and saw David, he despised him, for he was a youth and ruddy and of handsome appearance. And then the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
Do you know what the word for dog is in Hebrew? It's kelev. <laughs> Interesting, huh? And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I give your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Hashem of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have reproached. This day Hashem shall deliver you into my hand, and I shall strike you and take your head from you and give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines today to the birds of the heavens and the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth shall know that God is for Israel. And all this assembly know that Hashem does not save with sword and spear, for the battle belongs to Hashem, and he shall give you into our hands. He calls it out right there. His power is not his own. His power is in Hashem. His faith is in Hashem. The story of David and Goliath, it is a retelling of the story of the spies. It is a retelling of the life of Caleb. It is a story of faith in Hashem, despite the size and the power of the enemy. And so many of the elements from before are present in this story. And the example is set by a single man of faith. We can act to carry out God's plan, despite the fear that would grip us. It is a story of a single man who has faith in Hashem, a man who has faith in the promises of Hashem. And that man standing against the fear and the faithlessness of the mob that was responding in fear. You see, David had a promise from God that had been given to him by this point. David had already been anointed by Samuel. He knew that God had a plan for him. And David knew that God's plan would be fulfilled regardless of the fearful things that stand in the way. And so David put his trust in the promise that God had given, and he waded into the battle without fear, knowing that Hashem would be faithful. He had the miraculous victories of the past, the bear and the lion. He had a promise for the future, the anointing. And with these two, he could not fail. And this is exactly what Israel had they had the miraculous victory over the Egyptians to look back on. They had the promise of the land to look forward to. But the present, the present got into their hearts. The odds stacked against them overwhelmed them and caused them to fail. And it's this that is our own power when it comes to facing the enemy. Revelation 12.11 says, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their witness. And they did not love their lives to the death. The word of their witness, the word of their testimony, we have the events of our own past, the testimony of how God has acted in our lives. And we have the blood of the Lamb and the hope that this blood represents of the future restoration of all things. And with these two things, we can continue to press forward without fear for our lives because we know the promise is true and faithful. We have to look to the miraculous events of the past and recognize Hashem moving in our lives and in our midst. And we have to look to the promises that Hashem has given us for the future. And we have to get our eyes off of the present darkness and the fear that seeks to overwhelm us. Because our focus on the problems of the present will only cause fear and doubt and inaction 
when we should be taking action. And fear can cause us to take action when we should be sitting and waiting on Hashem to deliver and to provide. Two weeks ago, it was lust or desire that led to grumbling when the people didn't feel that God was giving them enough. Last week, it was pride that led the people to grumble that they were not being recognized in the same way as the others. This week, it's fear that led to grumbling when the tasks seemed too dangerous, large, or difficult. Each week, as we proceed through these chapters, we find another motivator that can pull us off the path of obedience. Another temptation that the wilderness will contain. And in each of these situations, it is talking about it that begins the process that leads to judgment. Complaining, slandering, doubting, even reporting more than absolutely necessary. Each of these put the people in the position of being on the receiving end of judgment. Because the wilderness has a purpose. That purpose is to test. It is to try. It is to try whether you will obey the word of God or not, to try your motivations and your heart, to try to tempt you to reveal the darkness within. And it is the tongue that will be the first indication of that darkness. And it's the taming of the tongue that can save us from a whole lot of heartache. So let's focus on that, taming our tongues as we darish chai, as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Darish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Darish Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.